This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Uh, the the scripture reading uh, comes from uh, the fourth chapter of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> is where we'll be. Matthew chapter 4, and we'll read the first 11 verses. When you find your place, would you stand? (coughs) 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 Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry... Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Let's pray. Father, we uh, we come this morning in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we thank you again for your word that's before us. We thank you that... uh, Lord, we're able to come and worship and read, study publicly, and hear Your Word proclaimed. Lord, we do pray. Make it effective in our hearts. We, uh, in and of ourselves, lack the power to understand. We lack the power to apply. So, Father, we pray by Your Spirit, Make Your Word effective in our lives. Take it deep into our being. Open up our minds so that we do understand and so that we do know how to rightly apply so that our lives may reflect Your glory. I ask that You enable me to speak the very Word You would have delivered here with accuracy, and with plainness. (coughs) And I ask that You enable all of us to hear, again, and grasp Your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. What I want to do this morning primarily is is, uh, focus in on this first uh, temptation and Jesus' response. Um, so I'm going to give you two titles, actually. One <clears throat> written in the uh, 
bulletin, the wilderness battle, because that's, that's really a title for this whole scene, um, all the way through verse 11. And then also, you, you may want to uh, have this in mind, words for life, or you could say words for living. Um, and I'm going to start with this question <coughs> to kind of take us in that direction. How significant is the Word of God in your life? What, what role does it play um, for everyday, day-to-day living? That's important, I think, to think about it that way because um, the danger uh, often is, is having God's Word, the Bible is, of course, what we're referring to specifically, having the Bible... God's revealed truth and viewing it as some sort of, um, well, almost like a, like a lucky charm of some type. In other words, you, you, we pretend to place great value on it and talk about the importance of it, the truth of it, using terms like inerrancy, or infallibility, uh, inspiration, but then never consulting it in day-to-day situations. Sometimes doing a a, uh, a dutiful reading, like well, you know, we know it's good to read the Bible every day, so so we set aside a, a time to to read a portion of God's Word. But again. Not making sure that we get it embedded in our heart so that when situations arise, it actually has profound influence on what we do, how we think, you know, how we, how we view circumstances that we're faced with, how we respond to circumstances that we're faced with. It's, it's given to us uh, not as a good luck piece, not as a holy ornament, you know, to place in a significant part of the home or or a place of worship, and just kind of revere from a distance. It's it's given to us as sustenance. We we need it. We need God's word for life. For living. Now we we have it, and we're going to we're going to talk about it in a couple of different aspects. But in the form of the Bible, for one. All right, this is God's revealed truth, God's very word. So you could say, in one sense, that there's nothing special about this book. If you mean by that, you know, the cover. <laughs> the binding, the pages, it's much like any other book. But it's the truth that is contained here. It's what these letters, which are just human instruments, right? I mean, the alphabet. But it's what they spell out, what they communicate when they're put together. It's God's revealed truth. 
So when I when I talk about God's word, I'm, I'm not specifically talking about a physical book, although this book is God's word because God's word is written in it. But I'm not talking about necessarily the physical thing. It goes beyond that. I'm talking about the revealed truth of God. Now, the way He has revealed it, He's given it to us in written form so that we have it in book form. You probably already know, but that's that's what the word Bible means. The book. That's why uh, Christians are referred to uh, sometimes as people of the book. And it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Even among unbelievers, that is used uh, at times. So, uh, the book, as if it stands out among all others, and certainly it does. The Bible. Alright, but it does. It stands out because it contains God's revealed truth from Genesis 1 all the way through the book of Revelation. It contains God's revealed truth. It is all true. And it's given to us to live by. Now, I just want to talk for a minute uh, about the context here, where we're at today. Um, we, we, we have in these verses before us a, a, a battle of uh, epic proportions. A clash between two kingdoms, between two kings, as it were. Satan, who is called by Scripture the God of this world, or the prince of the power of the air, and Jesus, who is truly King of kings and Lord of lords. So, let's just for the sake of understanding, let's don't make this mistake. When, when Jesus and Satan face off, um, I, I hope what I can do here is, is uh, by God's grace, articulate um, at least some aspects of the significance of it. I think it goes beyond our, our understanding, but there's much here to understand. But at the same time, don't think of it as a match between two equals. It's not. <laughs> it's not. In fact, when the Scripture refers to Satan as the God of this world, that doesn't mean that he really owns this world or that he has any real inherent authority here. It means that he's the one the world goes after. They serve him. That's, that's, in that sense, he's the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He is ruler over demonic forces. But again, <clears throat> by no means, by no means uh, equal to Jesus Christ. By no means equal to God. Absolutely. Absolutely. For trying to usurp God's authority. He didn't have inherent legitimate authority, he sought to usurp the legitimate authority. So, the setting here is this battle of epic proportion, um, the clash of two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world, satanic uh, uh, kingdom, world system, you might say, and the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. 
It's a foretaste of the whole ministry of Christ in its effectiveness. Um, in other words, what we're going to see here in the wilderness is what Christ is going to do throughout His ministry. And then, you know, finally, uh, well, at the cross and His resurrection, and then finally in the consummation in the last day. That is, defeat the opposition. Defeat Satan. Overcome this world. Overcome sin. Overcome death. This, this is a foretaste of all of that. They, they meet face to face in the wilderness and Christ emerges victorious. So it's a foretaste of His whole ministry. It's also a preparation, I think, in a very real sense for His uh, ministry. Um, Moses, for example, went into the wilderness and fasted 40 days in preparation to delivering the law to the people of Israel and then ultimately uh, taking them through the wilderness to the promised land. Now, he himself didn't cross over into the promised land, but he took them to the, to the threshold. Uh, so it, so it, it signifies to a preparation for what for the ministry that Jesus is about to fulfill. It, it is happening purposely at the beginning of His ministry. This is immediately following His baptism. Beginning of His earthly ministry. It's a testimony uh, of the unstoppableness. I'm not sure if that's a real word, but I'm going to use it. (laughs) It's a testimony of the unstoppableness of God's redemptive purpose. Like I say, as we go through the Gospels and, and, uh, and beyond that, you know, you read the promises of the, of the uh, for example, of the pastoral epistles, or you get into the book of Revelation and you read about the end times, uh, we see all the way through, right, that God's plan just goes on. In spite of all the opposition, hell and all of its forces, the most wicked of men, God's plan continues on. So, there's a bit of a testimony of that here in this... Uh, well, I think really a loud testimony of that in this, in this wilderness experience. Because that is Satan's purpose for confronting Jesus. To stop what God is doing. And uh, it's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. This same event is recorded in uh, two other Gospels. In Mark 1 and Luke 4. Now, Mark just makes a brief mention of it. He doesn't go into detail. Uh, Luke... Uh, gives a more lengthy account, uh, more detailed account, uh, like Matthew does here. And again, for the context, notice the first word in verse 1. Then. Then. Now, what just happened? Well, remember, John, is, John the Baptist is at the Jordan baptizing and preaching the gospel, announcing the coming kingdom and the coming king, of whom he says, speaking of Jesus, um, He's mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals or to loosen his sandals. And then Jesus comes at that point to be baptized. And he says, uh, well, first John tries to, uh, to resist him. He says, you should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. 
And in verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus answered and said to John the Baptist, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, we talked about that last week. Jesus is doing things as a man, not to earn righteousness for Himself, because He never ever was unrighteous. He's not trying to achieve righteousness for Himself. He is inherently righteous. But as a man, as representative for all who will believe on Him, He is earning righteousness for us. That is, what I mean by that is, He is living out the life that we should have lived. And we cannot because of our own sin. We are morally incapable of doing God's will. Sin is, is so much a part of us, at the core of us. Our corruption is, is so deep that we cannot do what is right. We, we, our resistance is that strong to what we ought to do. So, for example, fulfilling the law of God, impossible for a human being. Or I should say it this way, impossible for a sinful human being, (laughs) which we all fit in that category except for Christ. And Jesus comes and fulfills the law to the letter. And so He's baptized to fulfill all righteousness, And this idea carries on throughout His ministry as He does perfectly the Father's will. So what I'm saying is this. What we just, uh, what Zach just read in in, uh, the first part of chapter 4 is a continuation of that. He is fulfilling all righteousness. So when He is faced with temptation, He overcomes. And it had to be in order to fulfill all righteousness, or else you and I would have no hope of salvation. Then, uh, verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, When He had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon Him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then... Now, that's the significance of the, the word then there. Matthew's picking up uh, in, uh, in that... Well, he's not picking up. He's continuing his thought. We're picking up there, uh, partly because of the chapter division and partly because um, we didn't have time last week to go through the whole book of Matthew. So, so we had to stop, and we're picking up here. But Matthew's continuing his thought, and here's, the, here's what I'm getting at. Jesus has just been anointed by the Holy Spirit at His baptism and has just been confirmed by a heavenly voice openly to be, confirmed to be, um, the Son of God. God has just announced, quite literally, (laughs) from glory, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then, following those things, which marked the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. In other words, He is now manifest as the Son of God. He is now beginning to fulfill what 
uh, openly what He has come to do. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is a part of, again, it's, it's necessary. It's a necessary step. It's a part of fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus had to have this face off. Well, for a few reasons. I'm going to give you a couple. But uh, He had to be tempted in all points as we are. And in order to win our salvation, He had to be tempted without ever succumbing to sin. So he, he has to be tempted and he has to overcome. And so he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for this purpose. Um, Mark uses a little stronger language in Mark one twelve and says immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness or literally thrust him out. The Spirit thrust him out into the wilderness to be tempted. It's a graphic graphic picture. Now, it doesn't mean that he went unwillingly. Of course, he went willingly. But he, he, he was just that much, if I can say it that way, um, Spirit-controlled. He's driven, you could say, by the Spirit. Wouldn't that be good if I, we could, if I could say that about me? I was driven by the Spirit <laughs> to go here, to go there. He's fulfilling perfectly the Father's will in perfect uh, <clears throat> submission to the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> to the moving of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> in fact, He's now received the Spirit um, without measure. So He's driven into the wilderness or led up <clears throat> into the wilderness. Now, there's a couple of parallels. One is with Adam. This one is more of a contrast. Our first representative, Adam, the first man, was tempted, Adam and Eve, were tempted by Satan. Where? In the garden, right? Like I say, this, this first one is going to be more by contrast. They, they were tempted in the garden. Now, it was lush. They, they had everything uh, and more than really they should have wanted. Uh, they were given all manner of variety of trees, for example, to eat from, fruit to eat from, and only one to abstain from. The Lord basically set them in a lush garden, said, all of this is yours, enjoy. But that one tree over there, don't eat of it. Thank you. Appreciate that. So they were in a very lush, comfortable environment. And Jesus is in a wilderness. They're there with all they can eat, presumably eating. Jesus is in a wilderness fasting. And Adam stood as our first representative and was tested when Satan, when Satan came. And he failed. Now, let me, let me say this real quick, because some of you may be thinking, uh, you know what? Uh, <clears throat> Satan actually deceived Eve first. 
and Eve sinned. That's correct. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the Lord goes straight to Adam and holds him accountable because of the order of creation, the order of of the family, the family economy. He was responsible. And this doesn't take doesn't remove responsibility from her. She was wrong for sinning. Nevertheless, he was also responsible for her sin, and he 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 went ahead and partook of the fruit after her too. So he sinned also, but he also and this is what I want you to see. He also sinned in that he allowed her to take the fruit, or he allowed it to get to that point. You could say because what he should have done. Uh, was have his own face off with Satan before Satan ever got to Eve. He should have run Satan out of the garden. And God held him responsible for that. So Adam, as our first representative, failed the test. In the best of circumstances, a comfortable environment with plenty, he failed the test. Now Jesus, in the worst of circumstances... In a wilderness environment, fasting for 40 days, and Matthew says he was hungry. Well, you can imagine. And Jesus passes the test. So he, Adam, the first Adam, Paul calls him in Corinthians, first Adam, as our representative fell and took us all down into sin. The last Adam, Jesus, I like to say it this way, you know, the ultimate, the ultimate man, he passed the test. He lived up to the responsibility. Even under the worst of circumstances, he did the Father's will and resisted sin. One other parallel, and I think this is one Matthew kind of brings out here, and that is with the nation of Israel. Every, uh, every response that Jesus gives, we'll see more tonight, but every response that Jesus gives to the temptations comes from the book of Deuteronomy and Moses' instruction to Israel. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, where Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness fasting. So there's a a parallel there. They spent 40 years in the wilderness being tested before they were taken into the promised land, before that purpose was fulfilled. And they failed, and they failed, and they failed repeatedly during that 40-year period. Failed the test because they did not trust God. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness again, does what Adam was unable to do, does what Israel was unable to do, and passes the test, defeating sin. Now, here's the first one. And this is the only one we're going to deal with this morning. We'll get to the other two tonight, Lord willing. Verse 3, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now every time he approaches Jesus, um, it's, uh, it's with that, uh, that phrase there. Um, it's how he addresses him. If you are the Son of God. And it's, it's, the way that it's structured is, it, it's like saying, since, since you are the Son of God, then do this or do that. Now remember, this is immediately following his baptism, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and the voice from heaven 
This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So Satan is now coming saying, well, since you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Prove it. Prove that you're the Son of God and at the same time, fulfill your desire because, again, Matthew says in verse 2, he was hungry. In verse 4, here's Jesus' response. It is written, also used repeatedly here. And the verb there is in the perfect tense. It's very strong. It's the idea of something being done in the past that does not need to be repeated. It has, it, it's a past action with, with lasting results. It could, be, it could be translated this way, it stands written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every time Satan comes to Jesus, tempting him, Jesus responds with Scripture. It is written. It stands written. Why does he do that? Jesus is the Word made flesh. He's the Son of God, as has just been proclaimed. Why, why does He do that? I mean, He could have said anything, right? He could have said anything and it would have been, it would have been right. But he, he uses the written Word. Ah, that's a testimony to the authority of Scripture. Jesus speaks to Satan using the written Word. God's written Word. It stands written. That is, the Word of God is authoritative. It's authoritative. It is for our life, for our living. It is an authority by which we are to live. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, this is, this is from Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, if you go back and read Deuteronomy, uh, you'll find that uh, God is talking to the children of Israel there about the testing they have been through and about their failures. But He basically is telling them, all this has been done. You know, you've gone through these different trials and testings in order to teach you dependency on God. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's, that's the idea there. In order to teach you dependency on God. Man does not live by bread alone. You know, you desired this and you desired that. You desired uh, for your physical needs to be met. And God is taking you through all of these hardships in order to teach you that You are dependent upon God for all things. There's, there's, more, there, there's more to things than just the physical. More than matter. Physical sustenance, bread in this case, he mentions. Physical sustenance is not sufficient to sustain the whole man. 
We were not designed for mere physical existence. The physical is a part, it is not the whole. So yeah, we all need to eat. We all need to eat bread. We all need to drink water. But we can't live by that alone. What do we live by then? What do we need for for the uh, uh, for the wellness of the whole man? The Word of God. That's suggested again in in, uh, in Deuteronomy eight three in Jesus' quotation here. Man shall not live by bread alone, but in other words, but this is what he'll live by. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's an, that's an amazing statement. Astounding statement, really. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is for our sustenance. It's for, it's for life for us. It's how we live. You'll live, man shall live, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God, God has spoken, and he has, he has spoken for our benefit. But not, let's, let's, let's make it stronger than that, because that's what Jesus is, is saying. He's saying something stronger than that. In other words, it's not just uh, so that we get some benefit out of it, and you know we have a little better life here, we, or we feel a little better, or whatever, because we open the book and oh, there's a promise I like, and that makes me feel good. No, it's for our very life. In other words, what he's saying is you're you're dead without it. It's 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 to sustain you. God has spoken, and we, in order to be sustained, we are dependent on every word He has spoken. We are to live by. The Word of God. That's, that's how we're designed. That's how we're, how we're, we're built. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. <clears throat> Let me just give you a couple things here. Um, in the short time we have, have left, just take a few minutes here. John 1.4. Now, now, this is talking about Jesus, of course, the eternal Word of God. But it's, it's the Word of God, okay? It's not, and in John 1.4, He's not talking about the written Word. He's talking about the Word, the Word made flesh, but it's still the Word of God. God's speaking, God's communicating. John 1.4, John says, In Him was life. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. God's Word contains life for us. Jesus says this in John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. Listen closely. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. And they are life. It's the spirit that gives life. 
The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Think what I have time for here. Um, let me just skip to the next one. It, it illuminates again. We're talking. We're thinking about practical living. In Him was life. Same verse, John one four. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Psalm one nineteen that we read from earlier, verse one o five. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And it's the authoritative rule, just as we saw earlier, talking about Jesus using it. It is written. It is written. It's, it's as, as many of the old confessions say, the only rule for faith and practice for us. That means, the word practice, it's how we live. We live by the Word. We live by the Word. It has cleansing power. I'm going to go to this one, Ephesians 5, if you want to turn there. Important passage. Also, uh, where we read uh, earlier, Psalm 119, how, how shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed unto your word. Here, um, Paul is talking about Christ and the church in relation to husbands and wives. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word. So he uses the washing of water as an analogy, but the real washing, the real cleansing takes place by the power of the Word, the working of the Word in our life, the Word of God. Romans 12.2 Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How is that to take place? Well, I think uh, Ephesians 5.26 gives us a, a good answer for that. By the washing of the water of the Word. Cleansing our mind. Transforming us. It's the word metamorphosis. Um, transforming us into something different. By the power of the Word. So here's the bottom line. God's Word is given to us to, well, for life. Given to us to live by, for life. To consult on an ongoing, continuing basis. What, what do I do? How do I live? How do I, how do I act here? How do I respond there? What about when I'm in this situation? What about when I'm in that situation? What about the whole doctrine of sanctification, for example? To be made holy. It's, it's, a, it's a process that we go through that lasts however long we last. You know, from the beginning of our, our, our Christian experience, when, when we're born again, from that point till the time we die, we're going through this sanctification process. And it's accomplished by the Word. Jesus said in John 17, 17, in His prayer to the Father, sanctify them by Your Word. 
By your truth, rather. Your word is truth. So it's God's words are words to live by. They are words for our life in everyday situations. Be transformed, be washed by God's Word. Be enlightened by God's Word. Be made alive by God's Word. Find direction in God's Word. Find comfort, <laughs> promises in God's Word. That's, that's how you're built. That's how you're made. Not, not just to live a physical life, on physical sustenance, but you're made to live on God's truth revealed in His Word. Man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus says, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Would you stand? This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80. Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.